0: James D. Houston is the author of nine novels, including Snow Mountain Passage. With his wife, Jean Wakatsuki Houston, he co-authored the nonfiction work, Farewell to Manzanar. His other nonfiction titles include Californians, Searching for the Golden State, and Hawaiian Sun: The Life and Music of Eddie Kamei. His newest book is Where Light Takes Its Color from the Sea. We also are joined by Tom Killian. He studied history at UC Santa Cruz, where one of his teachers was Jim Houston. He took up a book, printing, and art. He's done a number of landscape studies of Santa Cruz, including the illustration used for the cover of Where Light Takes Its Color from the Sea. Thank you for joining me, gentlemen. Thank you.
1: Well, we're glad to be here. Uh,
0: I'd like to talk to you about your personal histories. Jim, could you tell us when you came to Santa Cruz and why, and a little bit about your beginnings at the... UCSC
1: well I came to Santa Cruz in 1962 uh, right after I finished uh, graduate work at Stanford I I was trying to get started as a writer and I had an idea for a novel I had a draft of a novel that had a lot to do with the Pacific Ocean and I wanted to be near the ocean and I had a longtime affection for this town that went back to my high school days in San Jose when we used to come over here uh, almost every weekend um, and so that, that's what brought us to Santa Cruz, and we found this old house, which we've been living in for 46 years, which turned out to have a, 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 a great piece of history connected with it. It's one of the, one of the, uh, younger survivors of the Donner Party lived in this house in the, at the end of her life, but we didn't know that when we moved in. The house was abandoned and empty, and we got the whole place, it was the cheapest place we could find. That's why we moved in and only later did we find out that it had a history, and much later uh, I, I made a novel out of that history called uh, Snow Mountain Passage, and I realized then that that story had just been waiting inside this house for somebody to hear it, but uh, long before that, uh, the university opened here in 1965, and uh, I, I began to meet people who were on the faculty, and Three or four years later, they invited me to come up and teach a, a creative writing class. They were getting a creative writing program started, so I, I started out as a you know part time lecturer in creative writing at UC Santa Cruz, and that became a an ongoing relationship that went on for over twenty years, always part time, and that's when I, I met Tom Killian, because he he was in those days was a was a student. Uh, already with fire in the belly and a, and a gleam in his eye, <laughs> and uh, passionate about, in those days, Mount Tamil Pius and uh, uh, the shorelines of Marin County where he'd grown up, and he was already doing these extraordinary woodcuts um, from, the, from the part of the world that he loved. And uh, as I recall, he came into my office and said he wanted to take a creative writing class because he, was, he wanted to do some captions for these woodcuts that he was doing. And he just had such a an urgency about getting into that project. I said, this is a guy. He's going to do this whether I pay any attention to it or not. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, we just had a, I, I don't know, I, I just felt a kinship with him right from the beginning because he loved a part of this world that's been my my home and habitat. Uh, so, uh, you know, we've been in contact with each other ever since. Tom,
0: uh, I wanted to get from you, you're an artist, and young artist, UC Santa Cruz, making woodcuts. And it seems so interesting to me that you were so compelled by the details of just titling and talking about your prints, that you wanted to take a creative writing course. That's really, that's a lot of ambition and a lot of attention to detail.
2: Uh, well, probably I wanted to, to find a way that something I was going to do anyway, I would get a credit for <laughs> that's one thing another thing was I had some friends uh several of whom uh Jim still knows uh who were who were very serious about their creative writing already and went on to career careers as writers one of them's Don Wallace and uh they were really good friends and they said hey you should take this class because Jim is a very cool guy and and uh Jim was um uh, uh just sort of um uh the kind of heroic figure that uh you know boys in their late teens look up to he he was a surfer he had found this old house that he'd fixed up he he made a living as a writer i mean writing novels you know and he was interested in the counterculture and surfing and hawaii and and all the the sort of regional sensibilities that we were all just discovering and uh and so you know it was really a wonderful turn on to to get to know Jim and he would invite us over to his house here this great house this amazing big old house overlooking the ocean and he would um let us sit around and and I shouldn't say this on air but he he uh would even let us uh drink Green Death which was Rainier Ale he he uh sort of I I don't think I'd had Rainier Ale before that and uh (laughs) <laughs> so those those were the days that that I don't think exist anymore in in the university system you know it It was a wonderful time. Santa Cruz was a wonderful place, and Jim was a big part of that.
1: I, I just have to say i gave- I gave up on Rainier Ale for, uh, about I drank Green Death for about three years, and that was a short-lived period. It's dangerous stuff. <laughs> maybe he just
2: laughed about it when we brought the six-pack over. You know, maybe one of us was old enough to bring a six-pack. I don't know if any of them were, though. I mean, you have to be 21. So. Well, that
0: uh, in your book, Jim, you recount one of the memorable firsts you had here in Santa Cruz, which was uh, coming here and drinking uh, Lucky Lager, I believe. <laughs> <laughs> Until you threw up in the beautiful sand of Santa Cruz. Well, these are the kind of you moments. The first.
1: <laughs> these are the kind of moments that uh, kind of link you to a place. <laughs> um, inevitably, uh, there are a lot of things like that that happened to me here. Um, the kind of partying you get into, and uh, I, I grew up in a, in a very strict, uh, w- a very strict religious background—a kind of fundamentalist Bible Belt family that was transplanted from. Texas and Alabama, out to San Francisco. My folks all came out here during the 30s, and uh, and they brought this uh, intact um, southern culture with them that included, uh, you know, red beans and cornbread and black-eyed peas and, and that kind of a diet and good country music like Hank Williams and Roy Acuff, uh, but also this kind of strict fundamentalist um, set of... Uh, Guidelines, so nobody, nobody um, drank in my family, nobody smoked anything like that. And it was only when I got finally got in college, I started, you know, drinking beer from time to time. And Santa Cruz happened to be the place where uh, I first drank a lot of beer, and um, passed out in the sand. And uh, so it was a memorable, memorable day.
0: <laughs> now both of you are really linked to the landscape. Uh, Tom, I, I'm thinking of you. You you were first inspired by to to art by Mill Valley and uh, Mount Tamalpais. Tell us a little bit about this and, and your work in Marin County. When did you start? When did the landscape tell you that you had
2: to paint it? Uh, probably when I was a little kid. <laughs> I'm thinking about this a lot because I'm just finishing a book on Mount Tamalpais uh, with uh, my friend Gary Snyder. We did a book on the High Sierra a few years ago, and and so. Um, We're we're doing this book together where where one of the parts I have to sort of reconstruct my artistic uh, interest in Mount Tam and it you know certainly by the time I was ten or eleven I was drawing little pictures of the mountain already and I had already seen a lot of uh, Hokusai and Hiroshige's little um, reproductions and little books of of their views of Mount Fuji. And I wanted, by the time I was a teenager, I already was thinking, I want to do pictures of Mount Tam that look like Hokusai's views of Mount Fuji, his famous 36 views of Mount Fuji. And that's the project that I brought to a gym later on in college. By then I would collected, eventually I got 28 views. I didn't quite get to 36. And uh, they were little wood, mostly linoleum cut prints, actually. And I wanted to print them on Japanese paper with some haiku poetry. And that's what I was working on, they weren't captions for the prints, they were haiku, uh, very short um, little bits that that fitted into this, I had a whole theme for it, sky, earth, and sea. And the lines uh, would be one line about sky, one about earth, and one about sea that related to each other and related to the picture on each of these 28 pages. And so it was kind of a complex writing project that I got involved in, really, although the amount of words in it probably amounted to 200 Words (laughs) total. Well, uh,
0: in the as has often been quoted, to make it shorter, it will take you much, much longer. Those two hundred words must have been uh, tough to find and choose.
2: Yeah, particularly for me, I'm a little verbose, so (laughs) it was a good exercise.
0: (laughs) Uh, As you moved came here, I, I wonder if you could talk about the the landscape here, in particular. I think what. Your print captures, and what jim's book captures is where the light where light takes its color from the sea it, this kind of reflection between sea and sky also mirrors the reflection between the person who's looking at it and what where the place they're looking at
2: I have to say that coming to u c santa cruz. Uh, was really a revelation for me because I'd grown up in a place underneath a big mountain and it's very foggy up there, in Marin County, and the landscape is sort of determined by this mountain and by the fog and by the water. It's a marine environment all around it, very rugged. And I, and I was lucky enough to uh, start out at UCSC at Cal College, which had this huge plaza that just looked out over uh, Monterey Bay. And the, the Santa Lucia Mountains of Big Sur looked like an island from up here in Santa Cruz, up a little bit high, and the light was just extraordinary. And that was the first thing that hit me. And when Jim had that title for that book and Hayday said, um, would you like to put a, a, a print on the cover? I said, oh, that, that title is perfect. I have the perfect print for you. And uh, it's always been the light of Santa Cruz. It faces south, and not many places in Northern California face south and have water in front of them. And, a, and none of them on the scale that Monterey Bay has. So Santa Cruz really has extraordinary light, and that is the, f- the first thing, and it must be reflected off the sea. I mean, that's part of the reason the light is so extraordinary here, and so for anybody that's involved in visual arts, um, it just, you know, really captures your imagination. And so once I got here, I did a lot of pictures of Santa Cruz, uh, not just Mount Tamal Pius. Mount Tam was like looking back to my past in your childhood, sort of magical world of childhood, and then where I was, I was really uh, taken by, also, by Santa Cruz.
1: Yeah, I'll, let me go back to those, those, my own early days here. You know, a, a lot more was going on than, than partying and, and drinking beer on the beach. Um, and the kinds of things that Tom was talking about that ignited his, uh, uh, his, his visual imagination worked on me in a similar way. I was, I was going to high school and then later in college over in Santa Clara Valley, uh, which in those days was still a beautiful region. It was still the world's uh, largest orchard. There were 6 million fruit trees over there before before Silicon Valley took over and, and paved over all the orchard land and put in this, this, um, these, these low-rise industrial complexes. Um, but Santa Cruz was a different, different kind of terrain, different kind of landscape. Um, I was spending a lot of time on the beach but, and a lot of time in the water And when you're offshore here, if you say you're out uh, offshore from Lighthouse Point, um, you can see the sandstone cliffs. You can see the line of the beach in front of the boardwalk. You can also see this extraordinary backdrop of the Santa Cruz Mountains and the Coast Range. And um, get in touch with features of the landscape that are really unique to to here. As Tom said, it's a southern-facing shoreline. And there's only a couple of... You don't get another southern-facing shoreline until you get all the way down to Santa Barbara, and all the all the great spots from Santa Barbara to Malibu, are all southern-facing shorelines. Um, you don't get that again heading north. A little bit at Bolinas, but you have to go all the way to Alaska to get a southern-facing <laughs> shoreline. <laughs> and um, all of that was working on me as a young guy. I didn't, you know, yet know how to formulate it uh, in terms of my writing, but uh, it just. Uh, it was my first connection um, with the natural world, and, uh, and, and in a kind of visceral way, and, uh, and that stayed with me. And when I finally really got serious about writing, my first novel, uh, the first novel that I tried to write, uh, was all about you know the Pacific, and um, being somebody from this side of North America looking farther west, looking out. Uh, toward uh, Hawaii.
0: And that's another landscape that's informed a lot of your work as well.
1: Oh yeah, I've, I've written a lot about Hawaii. And a lot about the relationship between Hawaii and the West Coast and Polynesia uh, and California in particular. There's a long history there.
0: Now, Tom, you have a, on your website you have a, these collections of prints uh, set in, in various places and I wanted to talk to you about them. You, one of the places that you address is, is the High Sierra. And, and um, Jim also is, mentions the coastal range. These mountains are really unique. And, and could you talk about the way that, that that place, this place, a part of California, um, that you try to create that visually to maybe speak to a wider world of the way we all connect to our places?
2: uh well it's hard to say um one thing i i know is that i i respond to mountains uh you know and a lot of people do the 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 kind of vertical landscape um because it's it's it rises up in front of you and it sort of entices you to climb up there and see what's there and, and mountains are so full of uh details and uh and you know little niches environmental niches that um that it, it's very attractive landscape, and so, so that's what uh, they call the charismatic landscape. And the High Sierra is the most charismatic of those mountain landscapes in many ways. Although the Coast Range has its incredible vegetation and 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 some really nice mountains as well. But uh, that 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 charismatic landscape, uh, as Gary Snyder reminds us, is not the only landscape uh, that 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 really can uh, can be a landscape that you get in touch with. You can get in. Land- Touch with the landscape of your home and get to know it well, even if it's farmland or suburbia or or urban, uh, and spend some time walking around it and getting to know it and and really get to love it. And I I always uh, leave in when I'm doing the Bay Area or things from Tam, Santa Cruz, I'll leave in the the urban parts of it. Uh, you know, I I love that too. It's it's all an interesting part of the landscape. So so I I, I wouldn't want to say you have to have, you know, this unbelievably charismatic beautiful landscape to uh to
1: feel in touch with the landscape but but the high sierra it sure is easy (laughs) no i think that's that's an important point here um wherever you grow up um shapes you you know it it shapes what you if you spend a long time in the desert uh that shapes your expectation of what the world is like um i grew up in san francisco out in the sunset district where there was early morning fog every morning of my childhood. I just assumed that that was, you know, uh, a feature of the world. Um, if you grew up in the Sierra Nevada, uh, you, get a, you get programmed in a different way. If you grew up on, on an island in the Caribbean, uh, you grew up with an island perspective, an island sense of time and space and relationship with people and all of that. Um, one place is not better than another. One landscape is not better than another so much depends upon where you happen to be born into. Um, My habitat uh, is the Coast Range of California, because this is where I spent most of my life. I I think of it as the the coastline between Mendocino and Morro Bay uh, has a kind of continuity of terrain, continuity of fauna and flora and climate patterns that I feel comfortable with. Uh, But the Sierra Nevada is just one of the most extraordinary uh, landscapes anywhere. I wrote about that in my novel, Snow Mountain Passage. The Sierras have a, play a big role in that novel. That's where the Donner Party got stuck. Um, but I spent some time thinking about the impact of that mountain range on these first pioneers who approached it from the east. Um, and it was really extraordinary for everybody because even the Rockies are, are amazing. But they had approached the Rockies from the east, and you get this slow climb up from Wyoming uh, up to South Pass, and you don't see the kind of dramatic uh, face of a mountain range rising 4,000 feet like you do when you're coming out of Reno. Yeah. I mean, they just shoot up into the sky, and there's nothing like that across crossing the continent uh, because of the, the, way the eastern rise of the Rockies is much less dramatic. But when these guys came upon the Sierra Nevada, they thought, oh my God, we got to go through this? <laughs> Over this wall. <laughs> Over this wall. Tom,
0: uh, I, you've done a, a bit of traveling in, in your time, and you have a, a book of your travels in in Africa. Could you talk about how that kind of landscape plays into having lived there and worked there? In, under conditions that cannot be considered particularly hospitable. Uh, could you talk about how that plays back when you come back here, the interplay between those two perceptions of landscape?
2: Uh, that, that's a very good question. Um, I, I I remember I, I was very taken by the landscape of Ethiopia, which was my uh, sort of chosen area to work in, particularly northern Ethiopia, which was uh, and is now the independent country of Eritrea. And uh, it had a landscape that reminded me a bit of California. I mean, uh, it had the eucalyptus trees that settlers had planted. It had the, the dry hillsides and mountains. And it even had the fog that would rise up from uh, way down by the Red Sea because uh, Asmara, the capital where we lived for a year, was uh, uh, sort of... Um, right on the edge of where it dropped off, seven or 8,000 feet down to the, the Red Sea, and this fog would hang around there. So so that, that reminiscent quality uh, allowed me to sort of get in touch with the landscape a little bit. And studying the history, I really got to know the landscape. But but where I spent the most time turned out to be in a very different environment. It was a in a refugee camp out on the great, uh, very dry, almost desert plains of eastern Sudan. I spent a year and a half there. And... I remember, um, coming home, uh, to California after that almost two years that I was gone, uh, almost all of it in the desert and, uh, just being so taken with, uh, the beauty of our coastal landscape and then uh, taking a backpacking trip in the high Sierras and getting back in touch with everything. It was, it it was a, a real, uh, you know, sense of joy that, uh, that i you know you get a sense of joy coming back to your home anyway but uh i think it was deeper because of the you know i really uh, felt the beauty of this landscape and i i think a lot of my better work started to develop after spending that time abroad uh in that very dry landscape but it was a beautiful landscape too in its own way and i did several paintings the most extraordinary thing was the verticality of the thunderheads which anybody from the midwest probably can or our texas can you know, re- re- think of, uh, you know, how you're looking out from this huge flat plain and these thunderheads come up and they're, you know, th- tens of thousands of feet high and they get the colors of the sun. And that, that was something I hadn't really experienced before. Jim,
0: you have some experience with the Midwest. Your family is from the South, the Midwest, all across the, this this nation. Could you tell, and you write about this well in your book.
1: Well, my my mother's originally from Alabama, but when she was 10, uh, her family moved out to the Texas Panhandle, uh, <clears throat> to a little town called Kwana. And um, and then when she was around 20, uh, she met my father, uh, who was just, uh, working as a field hand out there. Uh, and that was in the middle of the Depression, and the Dust Bowl was drying up the land. And, and they headed west with um, all those thousands of other people who wanted to get out to California where they thought they might have a uh, a better chance at starting life. And, and it worked out for them that way. Uh, but still, Texas was always the homeland, and particularly West Texas. And um, they wanted me um, to uh, understand and experience the homeland. Uh, so my mother wangled me a, a football scholarship to Abilene Christian College in Abilene. And you talk about a different landscape. I mean, it is flat. There's uh, there's, there's not a mound out there. Um, there's a, there was a place called the hill. People, for the first couple of months I was there, said, we got to go out to the hill one of these days and see, and and, and you can see farther. Well, the hill was about 200 feet high. (laughs) 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 And and that was it. That, That was, that was the local landscape experience. And, um, you know, in the wintertime, these winds would come down all the way from Canada with nothing to stop them come down through the, the upper Midwestern plains and blow right through Texas. And, and um, you know, the temperature could drop 40 degrees. I, mean, one, I went to a basketball game once with an Aloha shirt on. The Temperature dropped 35 degrees <laughs> between the time the game started and the time we came out. This <laughs> norther had come down and, and just uh, turned everything to ice. So I lasted about a year there because the, the country, it was just too strange compared to, you get, in a way, you get spoiled, you know, growing up in San Francisco and then Santa Clara Valley, and just having spectacular vistas like Mount Tamalpais and Golden Gate Bridge as a kid, they're just there. You don't understand as a kid, um, you just take it for granted that that's the shape of the world. You can look across from Russian Hill in San Francisco and see Mount Diablo poking up in the distance and see Tamalpais that way, and and then uh, and, and Santa Clara Valley was just this extraordinary grove of six million fruit trees. And as a kid, you don't think, you don't think about that. But it, it shapes you, it programs you for a certain expectation. And So I lasted about a year in the old country, and, and I had to get back out here. And I don't want that, if anybody's listening from Texas, I don't want that to be seen as a... Because I know people who grew up in Texas, you know, grew up in that part of the world, and that's their habitat. And they, and they love that, and they have an affection for the place uh, of a type that, that we have an affection for where we grew up and spent our time. That's what I was saying earlier. You know, so much depends on where you, what shapes your perceptions and what shapes uh, what's coming at you, and the weather and the, and the color of the sky. and You do get these tremendous uh, 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 drama in the clouds when a storm is coming in of a type that you don't see here when you're out there in those plains. So there's, there's, a, lot of, there's a lot of beauty out there if, you're, you know, if that's your place.
0: Uh, I'd like to talk to you both about your, your work placing humans in, in the landscape because you both do such a, a good job of that and going back and forth between you know, uh, uh, industrious little creatures scrabbling across the face of the earth. For example, I think one of the things that is interesting, in your 1964 essay about Santa Cruz, one of your fears is that they're going to build a giant pyramid on the cliffs here.
1: Mm, well, that, um, that's typical of a kind of threat that has always faced uh, this community um, because it is a major resort area. Um, we haven't talked much about that yet, but because it has a southern-facing shoreline, uh, it's, the, it's the largest and the best beach area um, in, in Northern California so that people not only use it who live in Santa Cruz County but from all over the Bay Area, from Oakland, Fremont, Hayward, Santa Clara Valley. People come over here on a weekend. There'll be a couple hundred thousand visitors on a single weekend on a hot summer day. Um, and that kind of traffic... Plus, now you have twenty-five or 30,000 people who work in Silicon Valley, which is only 25 miles over the hill, and live here. Um, so there's tremendous appeal when you have that kind of traffic in and out of the county to developers to make something more of what's here. And back in the 60s, they, they wanted to build a big convention center out in Lighthouse Point. And um, luckily, there was a huge outpouring of resistance to that. They wanted to build a convention center uh, with a freeway exit off-ramp route that would come over the town from Highway 17 and dump people out at Lighthouse Point so they could access this convention center and conference center. And this was in the mid-60s when there was a huge cultural battle going on because the the counterculture had arrived in the middle of an old retirement town where the registration was still like 75% Republican and 25% Democrat. Nowadays, that's reversed. But in those days, uh, there were whole loads of people that weren't talking to each other, except screaming at each other. But they came together around this protest against the conference center and the freeway exit route. And you had down at the Civic Auditorium, you know, a big crowd of people that included retired Army colonels and ministers from the Baptist church, and hippies dressed like Buffalo Bill and girls in their gypsy dresses, and they all came together to save that part of Santa Cruz from that kind of overdevelopment. And things like that have been going on ever since. There's always big proposals that get voted down, and it's helped to keep the place livable.
0: One of the aspects of the literary landscape here are the bookstores, and they have an interesting history. You started out, Tom, as a making prints and, and learning how to make your own books. Your first book of prints was one of the first things to come out of UCSC's print shop, was it?
2: Uh, such as a print shop, I mean, it's hard to say there was a print shop there. <laughs> uh, there, there were two um, uh, printing presses uh, by the time I found out about it, and one of them was a hand press that uh, Bill Iverson, uh brother Antoninus, one of the the sort of the beat poets uh, who had come down here, sort of like Jim. He, he discovered later that that he wasn't really getting paid a, a, a professor's salary. <laughs> They'd hired him on and had him teach some wonderful classes. And one of the things he did is he ran this printing press. And uh, and he, they were producing really, really unbelievably beautiful books. One of their books, uh, Granite and Cypress, a collection of Robinson Jeffers' poems, uh, what is one of the more extraordinary hand-printed books uh, that have come out of California Book Arts uh, at all ever. And uh, there's some great books coming out of here. Uh, and then the other press was a smaller one that they got started in, at Cal College, and, uh, and it was more teaching people um, about sort of modern typography and things like that. And there was a wonderful guy from San Francisco, a fine printer, Jack Stoffaker, who came down, who, amongst other things, had invented the game of bicycle polo. And, and he and he was the guy that taught me how to print, really, more than Bill uh, because I didn't want to use a hand press. That, that's the kind that looks like a Gutenberg press that you pull the big knuckle joint. I wanted to use a, a flatbed uh, with the drum that rolled over it, cylinder press, um, because it prints uh, much better. And, and that's what I've been using. I developed a, sort of my own way of reinventing the wheel to print woodcuts on that kind of press. And over many years, I've really perfected it. So I did get started printing there. Uh, I'm not sure that my book was one of the first, because Bill produced some really beautiful ones. But uh, it was it was one of the, the books that came out of this little flurry of students that got totally intrigued by printing. And although there have been people that have come since, there was this group of us that there must have been seven or eight or ten very dedicated and serious printers that came out of that intersection of Jack Stoffaker and Bill Everson in these two presses, which didn't last long. It only lasted a, a year or two more, um, or maybe three or four years more, that both those presses were really going. And uh, and so that was a little flurry of this book arts renaissance that took place in uh, Santa Cruz.
1: And several of those people are still here in town, yeah. and they have presses. I mean, Bill Everson uh, kind of uh, had a had a... A whole series of proteges, uh, and they, it's called what? It's called the Santa Cruz Printers Chapel. Yeah, yeah. Um,
2: we have an organization. <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah. And 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 it's uh, it's been right at the center of uh, you know the Santa Cruz literary scene for twenty five thirty years.
0: Uh, also at the center of the Santa Cruz literary scene, and you write about this in your book, is the hip pocket. Now I didn't know about the hip pocket, so could you tell us about the hip pocket? <laughs> <laughs>
1: Well, the Hip Pocket Bookstore uh, opened in 1964 uh, as a kind of uh, countercultural outpost. Uh, it was a very small store, um, but very hip, extremely hip, and uh, very controversial. And they sort of set out to challenge the the conservative <clears throat> element in the town, which they successfully did. They got shut down a couple of times for um, displaying, op- uh, you know, magazine covers that weren't considered to be appropriate. Uh, But it was a terrific little store, and it was the first place where literary readings were offered in Santa Cruz. Before they opened, there hadn't been a good bookstore. There was a stationery store called Plaza Books, Stationery and Books, but it was mostly stationery. And that's where you had to go. If you wanted a book, you mainly had to order it. They opened up, uh, Hip Pocket Bookstore opened up in 1964. And opening day, Uh, consisted of Ken Kesey um, reading from and signing copies of his second novel, um, Sometimes a Great Notion. Um, And this was preceded by Kesey's bus, his famous bus coming up Pacific Avenue with uh, Neil Cassidy driving, Neil Cassidy of on-the-road fame. uh, um, Mm -hmm. And, uh, yeah, Neil Cassidy. Uh, driving, and Ken Kesey sitting on top of the bus with a handheld camera filming his own arrival. <laughs> <laughs> <coughs> and uh, that was a sort of beginning of uh, kind of literary life in this in this community. Um, it established the Hip Pocket Bookstore as a kind of new presence where, where, where writers are going to be found and heard from. Um, it had a kind of scandalous... Um, part two, because above the bookstore, a, couple, a statue had been mounted. Um, uh, there was a guy named Ron Boise from San Francisco who had done a whole series of uh, life-size uh, sheet copper uh, statues, um, uh, scenes from the Kama Sutra, uh, erotic Hindu statuary. And um, one of these was mounted above the... the the door of the hip pocket bookstore. A man and a woman standing very close together uh, doing something that seemed quite illicit. And uh, uh, this was covered with a sheet all during the the book signing. And the grand finale of the day was the unveiling of this statue. And the mayor of the town then was a guy named Norman Lezen whose family used to own Sal's tannery. And he was a very prominent local citizen and an avid yachtsman. And he'd been out in the bay sailing all day so he came running up Pacific Avenue Mall at the last minute in his deck shoes and his, his captain's hat, <laughs> just in time to pull the drawstring to, t- to, to unveil the statue. And uh, he pulls, and the cover falls away, and here's these two big, gleaming copper male and female figures with their arms around each other, standing <laughs> obscenely close. And the the building, uh, the Hip Pocket Bookstore was on the ground floor of the old St. George Hotel, which was a senior citizen retirement hotel. And all these senior citizens were leaning out the window, you know, watching this scene in the street. The bus was bad enough, and Neil Cassidy, and then to have this <laughs> copper statue, and they think, oh my god, what's the town coming to? But <laughs> that was a real turning point in the history, because the street had, suddenly the street had filled up. I was down there with Peter Beagle, the guy who wrote The Last Unicorn. Um, he was the first writer that I met who lived here in Santa Cruz after I moved here. We had gone down to, to see Kesey. And somehow the street had filled up with, with guys in, in, uh, in sheepskin jackets and, and ratty boots and girls in gypsy, uh, dressed up like gypsies and all these counterculture outfits. Suddenly so the street was filled with these people. And who were they and where did they come from? Uh, but they didn't go away. They were there to stay. So it was, a, it was an interesting day. It was a great day. This this bookstore
0: became Bookshop Santa Cruz, and yes. could you talk about that? That was something you were personally involved.
1: In. Well, the, yeah, the um, the Hip Pocket Bookstore, uh, they changed the name to Bookshop Santa Cruz, and um, and then they moved across the street to a bigger uh, space um, because the university had opened, and <laughs> there was a lot of. Traffic and, 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 among other things, they wanted to stock textbooks for the university. And uh, a guy named Ron Lau had bought Bookshop. Uh, and then Neil, Neil Coonerty came to town, and he was a young guy uh, who wanted to get started in the book business. And uh, he came down, he, 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 he wanted to buy the bookshop Santa Cruz. And on the day that uh, he came down to see what the store was like, Uh, was the day that we went in, my wife and I went in uh, to launch our then-just-published book, Farewell to Manzanar, Mm -hmm. which came out in September of 1973. And on the day that we went into Bookshop Santa Cruz, that was the first place we'd gone with this book, Uh, Neil Coonerty was there, and I think, you know, we sold about 200 books that day. Um, And Neil watched that, and he thought, wow, this place is going to be a gold mine. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, and so uh, so he so he bought it, and uh, and he really turned it into just uh, a really important cultural center, cultural headquarters for for the county. Uh, from that day forward, um, it's just been tremendously important in in um, advancing the literary life uh, of the county. And during the earthquake, in Loma Prieta quake in, in 1989. Uh, the bookstore was destroyed. But, um, I mean, the building was destroyed, but the bookstore wasn't destroyed. Neil got all these portable um, tents and moved a couple of blocks away and moved all his book stock over there and got a volunteer crew to come in and prowl through the rubble and get all the books that they could and carry them over to this new facility. And for a couple of years, they just ran this um, by your seat of your pants bookshop out of these portable tents until they could get a new building built, and, uh, and just a, a heroic effort, you know, just to keep that, the idea of the store alive, and that became a kind of great symbol of the, of the Santa Cruz recovery from the earthquake, just uh, Neil's tenacity, uh, so it's, and the Stook store is going now, the boarders came into town, and there was a big hue and cry, uh, because um, it was the borders wanted to set up just two blocks down the street from bookshop santa Cruz, and a lot of people rose up in protest about that uh, but Neil has survived uh that competition and uh, and now he turned the store over to his children and uh, uh it's it's it 's just an important place tom
0: uh, you're working with a a poet now Gary snyder mm mm-hmm. Could you tell us a little bit about that project how, how that came together?
2: Well, that that was had been coming together for for most of my life. <laughs> I loved his poetry, you know, since I was a teenager and uh and I've always liked his style. He he really can uh find a way to not use too many words. And um I I had uh given him one of my books about Mount Temel Pius when uh right after I finished printing it, I went up there and visited with him and uh, his place up on San Juan Ridge. He just built it. Uh, It's built in this Japanese country style with a big handmade tile roof and these big beams. Beautiful place. And uh, Allen Ginsberg had a little cabin nearby. So from that time on, I I was involved in several projects with him. And one of them, the earliest one, where I got one of his poems and printed my art with it, hand printed, was for Bookshop Santa Cruz. They were going to run another freeway into Santa Cruz, right up to the university. And they wanted to run it through this land that was owned by the Cal Foundation, which had actually given all the land to uh, UC Santa Cruz as well. And uh, the Cal Foundation uh, had, I think, some plans to develop that land, too. And it was called the Poganip. And there was this big campaign to save the Poganip, and they finally raised enough money to get a grant and turn it into a city park and it's now City Open Space. And that was in 1978. And I did a, a poster to save the Poganip with a a picture, uh, a black and white picture, of very similar to that one that's on Jim's cover. It was sort of the first rendition of uh, Santa Cruz from the Poganip. And uh, and that wonderful poem of Gary's front lines from uh, Turtle Island. And he signed a few of those. And then we made a, a, a sort of a reproduction poster that they sold all of them. They must have made a 1,000 of them. Sold them all, and all the money went to to benefit the Save the Pogonip campaign in 1978. Um, so from then on, Gary and I sort of had a relationship. And uh, when I came back from Africa, uh, I really wanted to do a book on the High Sierra, a hand-printed book. I had sketches that I'd um, done over my, a lifetime of backpacking. And uh, and winter ski trips and and I wanted to uh, get Gary. I thought to to write something. Uh, I think he'd just come out with the Practice of the Wild, which is that wonderful book of essays. And I was really um, interested in seeing what he would write about the High Sierra. And he said, Well, you know, I, I don't I don't I just don't have time right now to do that. But but what I do have is all my High Sierra journals of from all the backpack trips and working in Yosemite when he was quite young in the 50s on trail crew. And, and over the course of about five months, he sent me, uh, he had his secretary who can read his, hand- well, he has beautiful handwriting actually, so she didn't have any trouble. She typed them all up and they, I would get these uh, year by year from, the, from about 1956 all the way through 19, uh, the early 1990s. These uh, sets of journals. And in them was the raw material of all my favorite poems of Gary Snyder's about the High Sierras. Uh, in fact, sometimes the poem itself would just be there, but a lot of times it was sort of the, the, what got worked into the poem. So it was just extraordinary for a text, and it inspired me to really get going on the project. And uh, eventually I did this big hand-printed book uh, with Gary's poems and my prints and uh, a lot of decorative Japanese papers, uh, and and divided into seasons, the way uh, a lot of uh, Japanese traditional art is done, and um, then Hayday Press got a hold of that, Malcolm Margolin, and uh, and they made it into a trade edition book, which is still out there being sold in the bookstores, especially up in Yosemite and Kings Canyon.
0: We've been speaking with Jim Houston and Tom Killian. Thank you for joining me, gentlemen.
1: Glad to be with you, Rick. It's nice nice to talk about these things. <laughs>